Hello, and welcome to the Hearn Him Podcast. I'm Dale. And I'm Tamara. And when two theologians get married, what, what you, you get, get is a podcast. Well, on episode 27 of this podcast, we looked at five bizarre stories in the Bible and what they mean. And that was actually one of my favorite episodes. It was fun. I feel, yeah. like, I feel like I say that about every episode that we reference back to, like, oh yeah, that was one of my favorite ones. Yeah, you do. But that one was really fun. Yes. And I think it's because you have the gift of storytelling, so it came out in that. I can spin a yarn? Yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> well, when we did that episode, we only selected five bizarre stories from the Bible to discuss and explore and hopefully land on what they mean. But there are actually a lot more than just, just five, five bizarre right. stories in the Bible. They're, they're sprinkled throughout, and in some places it's like... A heavy sprinkle. <laughs> it's heavy sprinkle. <laughs> Versus it's a light like sprinkle. When you sprinkle, it, you, you take the lid entirely off, so it's not even going through the slats, <laughs> like a heavy sprinkle. Yes. So we thought that it would be fun today to give you five more bizarre stories from the Bible. You're welcome. And take a stab at what they mean. And I say take a stab because we picked a couple that are even weirder than the ones that we explored back on episode 27. And so some of them, as far as like what it means, like I have some guesses. I yeah. have some literature that I can point you to. <laughs> uh, right. And I can give you my best attempt at it. Um, but there really are some some strange stories in the Bible. And we're going to look at five more of them today on the Her and Him podcast. Bizarre story edition. Yes, and Dale has taken the liberty to title them in very creative ways. So if you're disturbed by the titles, you can make sure to write your email to Dale there should be and not a, to Tamara. There should be a Bible translation committee that hires me just to write. You know how like each like paragraph, yeah, the little yeah. headings and the beginnings of chapters and things like that. I would get people to read their Bible because they'd be like, what is that about? Right. So yeah. let's dive into our first story. And this first story is titled Foreskin Foot Protection. And you can find this in <laughs> Exodus 4, verses 18 through 26. Yes. You can't tell me you wouldn't read that chapter. Yeah. I mean, foreskin foot protection. I am curious. Yeah, I'm curious. You're like, is this a million dollar idea? <laughs> right. No, it's just a really weird story. Okay, so this story comes at a time when God had called Moses to go back to Egypt in order to ask Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go free from their captivity. Uh, so Moses had previously grown up in the royal home of Egypt, and I think a lot of people are familiar with the story of Moses, but you might be less familiar with this part of the story. Yeah, but you can so, go watch Prince of Egypt. This scene was not in there. Conspicuously absent. Yes. <laughs> That's a children's movie, I would imagine so. It's a good movie, too. So after Moses had killed an Egyptian slave driver for mistreating one of the people of Israel, he had fled to Midian and gone into hiding. So 40 years later, God had called him back out of the wilderness. And this is where we see God tell him, go back to Egypt and ask for Pharaoh to let my people go. And along the way... During this journey, there was a strange event that was detailed specifically in Exodus four twenty four to 26. And I'll just read those two verses. It says, At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zephora took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. 
So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Yeah. So there it is. it's fun. It's a, some that weird. Page, it's like it's that point where you like lick your finger, turn the page, and like. You're just like, keep I don't going. know what just happened in these two verses, but I'm just going to keep going. Verse 27, let's pick it up here. <laughs> and hope it starts to make sense. And it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't. This, this is a weird two verses that there's not much clarity afterwards. There's not more details to help us figure out why Moses' wife was putting the foreskin of her son on Moses' feet. Yeah, it's a yeah, weird, so the, real place. Yeah, so the events, just to summarize, Moses was in exile in the desert. Uh, or in uh, Midian, and God calls him back to Egypt to say, "Let my people go." The whole plague thing, that 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 whole story. And as he's coming back, you know, God has commissioned him. All of a sudden, God like sneak attacks him and wants to kill him. And in order to get God not to kill Moses, his wife Zipporah cuts off her son's foreskin and puts it on Moses's feet. Once she does that, God's like, "Okay, cool," and then he leaves. And so it's pretty cryptic. Right. And there's a lot of different interpretations. Um, and I won't outline all of those, so I'll just kind of give you my best guess as to what's going on here. Because this is a very cryptic and uh, not a widely understood right. uh, piece of narrative in mm-hmm. the book of Exodus. So uh, just kind of some background information. Circumcision is the sign of God's people that God gave to Abraham. And this had been passed down and God had commanded that when you have a son on the eighth day of his life, you will circumcise him. And this was a sign of the covenant between uh, the people of Israel and God. But it was probably like a weird cultural thing for Moses's wife, Zipporah. And so it appears that they didn't do that when they had a son. Right. Because she wasn't Hebrew. Right. She was yeah. she was not a Hebrew. And so it was kind of a weird thing. I did some reading that said uh, maybe in, in other Semitic cultures, they they kind of knew about circumcision and they had practiced it. But it was more something like a coming of age, like puberty thing. So to Yikes. circumcise your infant to her was like very weird. It was very foreign. I yeah. guess. So they, they at any rate, they didn't do it. And it would be strange for God to send... Moses to save the circumcised people. This was such an mm-hmm. important symbol of and marker of them being his people when Moses hadn't circumcised his own son. And so he comes and he, quote, meets Moses is the language that's used. And interpreters have taken that a couple of different ways. One is that uh, God visited Moses with some kind of like really just hard hitting illness that was threatening his life. And other interpreters will say like, no, he literally came, like he literally met him in some theophanic kind of pre-incarnate Christ. Some physical dude came and wrestled Moses to the ground and there was this physical altercation. Um, I don't I don't know if, how I feel about one way or the other. I, think, I don't think it's clear enough which one it is. But apparently, Sabora, when this happened, and it seemed like Moses' life was in danger, um, she knew exactly why it was, it seemed. And so that kind of gives us a bit of an idea that maybe this was a conversation. Between Moses and her. Yeah. yeah. And they had disagreed mm-hmm. and she had decided not to do it. And in any event, she knows that like this is exactly the reason why Moses is being visited with this thing that is going to um, essentially end his gonna, life. Yeah. End his life. Yeah. 
And so it's in that moment that she goes to her son and she circumcises him. And then she puts the foreskin on Moses's feet. And that's an interesting thing because in the Hebrew, some scholars think that feet was a euphemism for private parts. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to figure out a way to say that in a, in a family friendly way. Yes. His junk. Yeah. And private parts is what we tell Silas. So there we go. Yeah. (laughs) Private parts. It, it may be that he put, that Zephora put it on his foot. Maybe it was like directly on, you know, the nether regions or mm-hmm. what have you. Um, I'll let other people argue about that. I mean, maybe I just don't want to know on that one. Yeah, I'm just not sure how important that detail is. But I mean, it did say she put it on the foot. I mean, in the, the logistics foot, so of it, it, says, it seems kind of important. It, right. Like, like that's the kind Bible. of a big difference. Like if you put something on my foot and you put something on my crotch, there's a very big difference. Well, Particularly him, if that yeah. thing is a bloody foreskin. Well, for him, it was a big difference. But in terms of what does this story mean and why did all this happen? Does that detail make a difference? Right. Yeah, I guess not. But uh, so support does this and it's basically it ends up being a, a covering for God's wrath. And I don't think it was ever God's you know intent to kill Moses, like he wanted him to be released to do his work uh, that God had commissioned him to do and really the the work that he was born for. And so um, this blood, this bloody foreskin, that's pretty gross, kind of serves as this covering for God's wrath. And what's interesting about that within the context of the book of Exodus is that it sort of kind of prefigures the uh the final plague that would come upon the egyptians where their firstborn sons would be killed by the angel of death but the firstborn sons of israel were protected because by, of blood by the blood right. over their doorpost and so mm-hmm. that was a covering for for god's wrath and so and even within that you think about firstborn sons you think about blood covering and and propitiating for for God's wrath, you're pointed to the, the New Testament the narrative of Jesus, which yeah. the Exodus on the whole mm-hmm. is prefiguring what what Christ came to do in a lot of different ways. Yeah. So when you understand it that way, I think it's a it's slightly less weird because you can see its connections. But as an isolated event, it's still it's still really weird. Yeah. Like I wouldn't like want to preach on this passage and then like try to figure out like what's the life application of this mm, particular three yeah. verses. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if there and, is one. Right. It's, it's just as it fits into the larger narrative, it, it's, it's providing this, this context and this meaning and this weird little episode of Moses's life. Yes. So that's about all we have to say for that odd, strange story. So when you're reading through the book of Exodus, hopefully you now feel a little bit more certain that you kind of sort of know what's happening there. Yeah. And they, oh, we didn't even talk about the whole bridegroom in blood thing. That was a very cryptic thing that she oh, said. Yes. And I think it was just that she just hated the idea of circumcision. And so that it was just kind of like this reaction of repulsion. But all in all, it's a cryptic thing that she said that uh, commentators don't really agree on exactly what she meant by that other than like, there's blood here and you're my bridegroom. So (laughs) (laughs) there it is. There it is. Yeah. So moving on to our second bizarre story, which happens over the course of a few chapters in the book of numbers, which numbers is always a fun book. I mean, it's a little hard to get through the book of numbers because it's just a lot of numbers, but then there's like (laughs) a couple of chapters of story. 
Right. And, and, and this is one of them. Hidden between the cleft of numbers and numbers is, is this little <laughs> gem of a bizarre story, which we have taken to calling a flying talking donkey. Yes. Yeah, so in this part of the story, what's happening is Israel has been freed from Egypt. So Moses was successful in case. Prince of Egypt. That yes. movie's over now. Yes. We're moving on now. Um, but they were still wandering through the desert, so they hadn't entered into the promised land yet, but they were getting closer to it and they had settled next to this other group of people who were called the Moabites. And so naturally the Moabites weren't really excited about this. They weren't thrilled to have new neighbors in town and (laughs) (laughs) what? They're just like, there goes the neighborhood. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you get a new neighbor, you're like... Who is it? Are they a family? Are they not a family? You're just, we had new neighbors across the street in case you didn't know. As I'm washing dishes, I was like watching them move in. Yeah, They seem very friendly. You're a big neighborhood eavesdropper these days. You just sit at, <laughs> sit at the sink and. I don't sit at the sink. I'm working. I'm washing dishes. Rude. <laughs> Anyways, so the Moabites are not thrilled with the people of Israel moving in next door to them. Right. And by the way, the Moabites, how they started as a nation, that that's another bizarre story, but we don't have time for that one today. We don't. No. So the Moabites had a plan of the way that they were going to basically get rid of the Israelites moving next door to them. So they were going to hire an occult leader to put a curse on Israel. So they hired the services of a diviner named Balaam. They paid him a hefty sum and he agreed that he would go and put a hex on the people of Israel. But before Balaam went to curse the people of Israel, he wanted to at least have a conversation with their God. And so he did. He talked with God. God basically told him, hey, Balaam, back off. Don't do anything to my people. But Balaam didn't listen. And so as he was traveling towards Israel, God himself had came and blocked the pathway of his donkey. The thing that was happening here is the donkey could see God, but Balaam couldn't. And so this continued to happen. Uh, God was blocking the path of the donkey and Balaam was getting upset. And he continued to hit the donkey every time the donkey wasn't moving forward because God was physically stopping the donkey from moving. And this is where the park of the story gets really weird. So after several times of this happening, finally, the donkey turns around and he tells Balaam, why do you continue to hit me? And Balaam replies, do you know if I had a sword, I would kill you right here and now. And he starts arguing with this donkey. And then God opens up Balaam's eyes. So now he can see the angel of the Lord standing in front of the donkey. And I'm sure he felt pretty foolish at this point because he was beating the donkey. And now he could see why the donkey was moving. But instead of cursing the nation of Israel, Balaam ends up blessing them. Can you imagine like getting a into a, a verbal altercation with, of all things, a donkey? Yeah. At first, like it reminds me of what, Shrek. It wasn't even like a horse. It was a donkey. It was yeah. Like, <laughs> it's yeah, odd. Yeah. So like the donkey's not moving. And so he keeps beating the donkey. Then the donkey runs, runs the wrong direction. He beats him again. And finally, the donkey turns around and says, hey, bro, why are you still, why are you hitting me? And he says, you know, I'll do more than he, I don't have a sword right now, but if I did, I'd, I'd kill you right now. And then they just start arguing back and forth. And it's never explained, like, like it's just taken for granted that this guy's talking to his donkey and like, that's not a crazy scenario. Right. We don't see Balaam being surprised. Like, oh, wow, you're talking. I must be losing my mind. Like, he's not worried that the donkey is talking to him. And maybe it's because he's like a sorcerer or... 
Maybe. Maybe because I, mean, maybe he had, I don't I don't know. Maybe it was just a talking donkey and that he had regular convos with talking donkeys. his donkey. I have no idea. It's possible. <laughs> but at any rate, God had blocked the path. And so Balaam, uh, he didn't end up cursing Israel. He actually ended up blessing them, which is this big turnaround because the Moabites, they hired him to curse. And then he actually did like this series of prophetic blessings on the people of Israel. So the Moabites weren't happy with that. And so the the, the point of the story and why it's in there is uh, the story really comes in the midst of a narrative of how uh, the people of Israel came to be free from captivity in Egypt and, and take the land that, that God had promised to Abraham. And so as they're doing this, there are these supernatural events that are taking place um, that God is showing that this is his chosen people and that he is giving them this land. And, and, and the reason for that is that they were meant to be a light to the nations and eventually salvation would come through the line of Israel, and we know that to be true in the person of Jesus. But this is just a weird episode along the way where a dude was beating his donkey and his donkey mm-hmm. got upset about it. Right. And I think it also uh, shows that salvation for the nations would come through Jesus and his kingdom, and that was not going to be stopped. And we'd seen that through a series of miracles and supernatural events. And this was one of them, but it even goes to show that not even the spiritual force of darkness was going to thwart the plan of God. And that is something that I think we can all hold to and know that's true, regardless of the enemy's plan. Like it, it's not greater than God's plan and he's going to continue to move forward with the plan that he has. Right. Well, moving on to bizarre story number three, this one is, a risque sermon illustration. Have you ever had a, a risque sermon illustration sitting in a service and you go, whoa, that was no, that was really on the edge. But illustrations are powerful for sermons. Yeah. This one would not, this one <laughs> could not be preached today. No. Certainly not. I don't know, maybe. It comes from Isaiah chapter 20 verses one through six. And so really at the heart, uh, prophets like Isaiah, they're preachers, right? And so... They would be given messages by God, and they would preach these sermons. And a a sermon is only as good as its best sermon illustration. Maybe this one took it a little bit too far, but Isaiah's saving grace is that God actually told him to do this. I would feel less confidently if, like, my pastor said that God told him to do this, and then he did it. Uh, I would would, would have some questions. Well, we're in different times. I would have some concerns. But Isaiah... I'll take him as word that God told him to do it. So (laughs) God says to Isaiah, he's like, all right, Isaiah, here's the plan. I want you to strip down buck nude. I want you to take off your sandals too. Don't, don't be walking around naked with your sandals on. That's not a good look. Take your sandals off too. (laughs) And I want you to spend the next three years just periodically walking up and down the coastal city of Ashdod. And that was a city that was important because it had, been taken uh, captive by the this northern invader called the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians really threatened the security of the northern kingdom of Israel at large. And in fact, the Assyrian Empire would eventually defeat them and basically destroy that northern kingdom of Israel. And that was part of God's judgment on the people of Israel because they had turned from God and worshipped idols and they had done unjust things and allowed injustices to persist and they had even sacrificed their infants on altars of fire and the whole bit and they refused to repent and they refused to repent and eventually they were defeated by the Assyrian Empire. That hadn't happened yet at this time when Isaiah is preaching to them. And so at, at this moment, there's 
there's still hope. They could still turn and be saved from the coming calamity. And so the best way to do that would be for Isaiah to strip down naked as a sermon illustration and walk up and down the city of Ashdod. Yeah, this was certainly the best way to do that. There there was no Clearly. other way. Obviously. <laughs> and so then after Isaiah does this, God says, okay, so this is what's going to happen to the people of Egypt and Ethiopia when the Assyrian Empire comes down and, and conquers them. And w- when this Assyrian Empire, they would carry captives back to their empire after they had defeated a people. This is what they would do. They would strip them down, take their shoes, take their clothes, and they would march them in a line out of their homeland. And uh, scholars will debate on whether they were actually naked or if they had some under ruse. But in any event, <laughs> this was a form of, you know, the worst humiliation. Like we just Right. And that was up. their goal. Yeah. We mm-hmm. burned your house down and now we're going to march you uh, across, you know, a, a day's long journey uh, barefoot and naked, basically. And you might be thinking, what the heck did the Egyptians and the Ethiopians have to do with this? Isn't we we're talking about Israel and they're going to come down and invade Israel? That's a very astute question, dear listener. Assyria. What did I say? You said Israel. Israel's going to take Israel. Oh, yeah. No, Assyria's no. going to take Israel. Yeah. Lots of names. Well, well, what do Egypt and Ethiopia have to do with this? Very good question. And the audience of this text is Israel. But what was interesting is as Israel looked north to the Assyrian Empire, they knew that their security was looking bad. And so what they had done is they had formed alliances with the other nations around them, including Mm -hmm. the Egyptians and the Ethiopians. And the reason why they had done that is they wanted to form, you know, these allied forces so that if the Assyrian Empire came and invaded one of them, all of them would fight against that empire. And it seems to make sense. But as Israel had allied themselves with these other nations around them, they basically kind of got into bed with them. They started to worship their gods. They started to celebrate the unjust things that they were doing. And basically they had forfeited their right and their ability to be the light of God in the world. And what's more is that they were putting their faith in the allied forces of these other foreign nations rather than trusting in God. When God had told them, hey, if you just stop worshiping idols, if you just turn back to me, if you just correct the injustice in your midst, I am powerful enough. I will rescue you. I will protect you from this northern invader. And they just They just went further down that rabbit hole of leaning on these other nations and taking on the sinful practices that God had told them not to do. And it just became this domino effect of falling further and further away from God as they were trying to maintain security. Yeah. And so what Isaiah says here is that, Hey, those people that you're relying on, they're going to be carried off barefoot and naked because they're going to be defeated. Right. And then once they're defeated, you're going to be there left to protect you. Nothing. You're going to get nothing out of them, mm-hmm. and then you're going to experience the same. And unfortunately, that all happened. And it didn't have to, but it did. Uh, so, like many great sermon illustrations, it fell on deaf ears. Mm, yikes. Yeah. And But I think for today, it's a good reminder that the things that pull us away from God will never be the things that lead to our healing or victory. And yet we tend to still double down on those things that pull us away from God. 
We do. That's a prophetic word, even for us mm. today. Yeah. Are we on number four now? I think Moving bizarre, on to number I, was, four? I was counting them. I, couldn't, yeah. I didn't number them in my notes. Bizarre story number four. It is uh, the wonderful King Nebuchadnezzar, and he decides to go and take a spiritual retreat. Uh, this can be found in Daniel chapter four, verse four to 37. So if you've ever read the book of Daniel, which I like the book of Daniel, but there's some, there's some weird things that happen in Daniel. I like the first half of the book of Daniel because it's all these cool stories. Yeah. And then <laughs> you, at some point you turn a page and it turns into like this prophetic apocalyptic thing. And I'm like, oof, I'm going to. Uh, skip over to something else. I think else I'm done with Daniel now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm like, I don't understand what's going on with this. Yeah. So if you've ever read the book of Daniel and hope, um, hopefully the whole thing, not just the first few chapters, uh, you will quickly find out that King Nebuchadnezzar was at least two things. He was a world-class megalomaniac and a serial backslider, which... Those are two maybe bad we all things. know. Maybe we all know a few people like this in our lives. That one kid at youth group that <laughs> came down to the altar every year no, at camp on Thursday night. That poor child. Yeah. So it seems like in the opening chapters of Daniel that we see Nebuchadnezzar just get taken to school by God several times, and every time he does, he looks like he's going to repent. Like he looks like he genuinely realizes the foolishness of his ways, and he's going to repent from those things. But sure enough, uh, he doesn't do that. He goes right back to doing something else foolish, and that's why we're saying that he's a serial backslider. And so all of this seems to come to a head in the fourth chapter of Daniel, and we actually get to hear about this story told from Nebuchadnezzar himself, which is interesting. Yeah, it's like this public record that got put into the book of Daniel. It's this decree that Nebuchadnezzar had made, and he start, kind of tells his own story as to what happened to him when... When he went crazy. He was forcibly given a spiritual retreat. <laughs> I think that's the perfect way to say it, forcibly. Yeah. He didn't, I mean, he didn't do it on his For own. a lot of people on spiritual retreats, like... <laughs> Yeah. They were they were forced. That's a whole different can of worms, but Yes, it is. <laughs> so one day he's sitting in his palace and he's just thinking about how amazing and how awesome he is, because uh, that's definitely the kind of king he As was. As he would often do, yes. Yes. Um and then he decided, you know what, I'm so exhausted from all of these amazing thoughts of myself, I'm gonna just take a little quick power nap. And he had this horrible dream that he couldn't understand, so he brought all of his magicians, and they were not able to tell him what his dream meant. So he called on Daniel to ask him what this dream had meant. Which is weird, because, like, why doesn't he, like, ask Daniel first? Because, like, Daniel's always, like, interpreting the... Like, Daniel's... Yeah, this old, happens throughout yeah, the Daniel's book Daniel's always the one that gets it right. Like, call him first. Yeah, that's true. And you see this on multiple occasions. But again, it's Nebuchadnezzar, so here we are. So when he calls Daniel and is like, hey, tell me what this dream is about, uh, it turns out that this dream was not a good dream in terms of Nebuchadnezzar's future. So Daniel looked really troubled, and that's when Nebuchadnezzar said, like, what is it? Just tell me. It turns out that the dream meant that Nebuchadnezzar was going to go crazy. He was going to lose his mind, and he was going to live like a literal animal in the woods. He was going to let his hair grow. He was going to let his nails grow out, and he was going to eat grass like an animal. And that was going to persist over a period of seven years. This was going to happen to him. That's a really long time. In the, the actual right. text, and I don't know the the Aramaic, it says seven times. And I think that mirrors later. I think it's in Hebrew where 
it says in the the prophecies time times and half a time i didn't look up alternate meanings of that mm, word if it wasn't quite seven uh, yeah years. so like i didn't i didn't look up the the languages on that but the prevailing interpretation that was it was, is a that long it was seven time. years yeah literally seven years yeah and so this judgment for nebuchadnezzar was because of his sin uh his arrogance and his injustice uh, that he continued to do against a lot of the people in his kingdom. And so Daniel urges him to repent again. Uh, But of course, Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't. And so what happens to him? He ends up living like an animal for seven years. When he was just taking a walk, talking about how great his city is and how great it's been built by him. And then boom, all of a sudden, crazy animal man. It's the scene. It's like a crazy thing like because he's it's just so funny it's like it's it's very it humorous because like he was literally walking around saying like wow yeah look at this great city i built and he's like gesturing and he's looking to his friends and all of a sudden like and he just like <laughs> he just like hunches over on all fours and then he like runs into the woods and strips off all of his clothes and there he goes for seven years and yeah. his nails grow long and his hair grows mm-hmm. out and, and he's he eats, eating grass he's eating grass and dirt and he's just Sounds good like old, our son. <laughs> good old Neb is just out there good in the wilderness Neb. living amongst the, the cows and, and the wild hogs. Yeah. And what's interesting, too, is this is something the Bible doesn't really explain, is seven years later, he comes back and somehow he still has a kingdom. Right. Like he's still like king. There, there must have been a lot of people that were just like running the show for him. You know, maintaining the kingdom while he's out. Just yeah, I don't being a imagine he's taking very many meetings during those seven years. And just taking breaks to eat some grass. So, yeah. So after the seven years, he actually sits down and he writes this decree that we all get to read in the book of Daniel. And Nebuchadnezzar finally humbled himself and gives glory to God, which that doesn't always happen. I mean, that's a good ending to the story. Yeah, that's bizarre. I don't know how you're gone for seven years in such a volatile empire yeah. and come back and still have your throne. I mean, with a lot of these ancient nations, like you go to the bathroom and come back and like someone's taking your throne from you. <laughs> right. Like it's We crazy. see that in Israel. Yeah, that he was gone yeah. for seven years and he came back and then he writes this dec- decree and he gives glory to God. And so it was probably God's you know providence or guiding mm. hand and we don't get all the details of that where God wanted him to be restored to the throne for this purpose so that he could write this decree so that the uh, the pagan king of the empire could give glory to the one true God. Mm. So what does this story mean? What's what's it all about? I mean, it's like the ultimate like mess around and find out story. <laughs> it's like the ultimate like pride come before the fall example. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. Nebuchadnezzar's hubris and his self-absorption uh really the the bill came due on that one for mm. him yeah and he was warned and you know daniel when he interpreted the dream he's like hey so like you might want to repent on this stuff so that you don't spend the next seven years in the wilderness like a freaking animal and nebuchadnezzar just didn't didn't listen and so that whole idea is it's it's better to be humble or to humble yourself than to be humiliated and too few of us Mm. listen to that advice yeah probably not the same result of nebuchadnezzar (laughs) but in in ways that can really i mean they can really do some damage yeah yeah 
They can really do some damage if you if you don't. And I would say that the seven years of that weren't more than just humiliation. Like there had to have been damage done in different ways. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's that one. And our last bizarre story of the Bible for this episode is Jesus gets hangry. And we find this in Matthew 21 verses 18 and 19. And, you know, if you've ever been, if you were ever hungry or hurting, Jesus was your guy, right? And he, he was the one you want to go to. He was constantly performing miracles. He was constantly blessing people. He was providing food and healing. And what's more is that he would often even refrain from eating himself. Like as he was doing that, I think about the woman at the well, uh, where he's talking to her and the disciples come back and like, we're going to get lunch. He's like, I have food, you know, nothing about because my, my food is to do, uh, the work that my father sent me to do. And he famously fasted for 40 days. And so he wasn't a glutton or anything, uh, but he did get hungry because he was fully human. And one time he was going into Jerusalem and he saw this fig tree and it was, you know, early in the day, he had a light breakfast. And so he, he was hungry. And the, it says in Matthew, he, he was hungry and he goes up to this fig tree and he's like, all right, I'm going to get myself a fig here. This is great. It's a nice fiber on my, my travels into Jerusalem. And he just starts like kind of rustling through this fig tree and it's all leaves. There's no figs on this whole tree. And so Jesus, he steps back and he says, this tree is useless. I curse you. And then instantly, the tree just withers up and dies at the command of Jesus. And I love how the disciples were so shocked. They're like, whoa, how did that happen? As if they hadn't been hanging out with Jesus for a while now. Like literally like raise a dude from the dead, heal people with leprosy. But it's the fig tree that they're shocked by. Yeah, like, but the the fig tree, that's, whoa. (laughs) And when they say like, "How, how could this how could this be? Uh, he responds to them. If you have faith, you'll do, you'll, you know, have power like this and uh, not just power to kill a fig tree, but to tell mountains to move. And that kind of seems like an interesting response where like Jesus gets mad at the fig tree, curses the fig tree, the fig tree dies. The disciples are like, Whoa, how'd you do this? He says, you'll have power to do not only this, but to move mountains. So it's kind of an well, enigmatic it, story. Yeah. Because it, would appear to be negative that he's using his power to kill a tree. And then he's saying, if you have, you know, you have this power and through your faith, you can make mountains move. Like that feels like a positive thing, but cursing a fig tree feels negative. Yeah. So I think in order to understand this story, what we have to understand is that Jesus was actually hangry. Like I made a joke that Jesus gets hangry. Yes. So but he very wasn't, conservative people don't get mad at us. Yeah. <laughs> but the curse was a metaphor. Jesus is kind of operating like one of the prophets of old with one of these mm-hmm. kind of pictures and this, yeah. this metaphor. And so really the fig tree is representing Israel and the power structures that are currently in Israel. As Jesus is looking at this fig tree, he's walking towards Jerusalem. And basically what he's saying is that this fig tree is like the religious leaders in that it bears no fruit and they have a spirituality that is not bearing any fruit. They were a religious people, but their their religion had no power. And so it's not serving any function. It's just all leaves and no fruit. And so he's basically saying, metaphorically, I'm setting that aside. Conversely, as he's talking to his disciples, he's saying, hey, faith in me is what's going to result in true transformative fruit, in true transformative 
power. And so if they prayed in earnest to seek God's will, they they would know true power far beyond what these religious leaders in Jerusalem had established. And really, when you look at the religious leaders in Jerusalem and, and, and what they had amassed for themselves in terms of power and prestige and influence, it seemed very powerful at the time. But what Jesus is saying is all leaves. It's no fruit. Mm. And so there, there's no power in that. But the true power is connected to Jesus himself. And as they are connected to him in faith, they'll have not only the power to curse a, a fig tree, but to move mountains. The, the power of life and death itself is, is bound up in faith in Jesus. And they'll see these incredible, miraculous things, and they'll bear fruit uh, that they never could have imagined. And so he's he's setting up this these contrasting views of of the things that seem powerful, which is the religious establishment of Israel as they're going towards Jerusalem and just a true and genuine faith in him. That's what's actually going to bear fruit. Yeah, and I think that's a initially when you read it, you're you're trying to figure out what is Jesus doing with this poor fig tree and like why is he just cursing it? But <laughs> there's a whole lot behind this metaphor. It's really rich. I would say out of all of the bizarre stories, this one had the most meat packed into it in regards to what Jesus was doing and uh, what this metaphor was serving. Yeah, so we hope that going through some of these stories has sparked your curiosity and your imagination for everything that's in the Bible. And so we encourage you to read it. Uh, pick up a Bible and <laughs> yeah, read it. Read, read it. it for all its narratives, and don't gloss over the weird verses about circumcision and feet and flying talking donkeys and running around naked in the woods or barefoot. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna be naked, moral of the story: you can't also have your sandals on. Yes, sandals need to come off. And <laughs> cursing fig trees and the whole thing. We hope that like these kind of crazy stories that end up actually having really important mm-hmm. spiritual meaning to them. If you are willing to sit down and kind of do the work and wade through some of the minutia of it. Uh, so we hope that your curiosity has been piqued by that and that it makes you excited to read your Bible and find more bizarre stories and some not bizarre stories uh, in there. And if you get stuck on a bizarre story, we can't promise that we have all the answers or even any of the answers, but we can probably l- look some stuff up in some books and on the internet and, <laughs> and come alongside you in that way. And so uh, maybe somewhere down the line, uh, we'll do even five more bizarre stories and we'll, we'll just, we'll just keep going back to the well uh, until the stories become more normal. Yeah, and so if you run into a particular passage that's kind of bizarre and you don't quite understand it and like we could be a resource to you, feel free to shoot us an email or a DM on social media and we'll do our best to tackle it with you. Thanks for listening to the Her and Him podcast. If you enjoyed hanging out with us, consider subscribing to the podcast to receive it automatically each week. Also be sure to head over to our website, hernhim.com, and you can get show notes for this episode, read our blogs, and other helpful resources. We'd also love to hear from you, so you can email us at herandhimblog at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we will see you next time. Dear Heavenly Father, 
Thank you for working everything out for my good. Help me trust in your perfect plan. Amen. Father, thank you for loving and caring for me. With Christian prayer meditation, you can pray along to prayers based on specific topics. Go to lifeaudio.com or search your favorite podcast app for Christian prayer meditation. You can also download the Abide app for biblical meditations at abide.com.